Good afternoon, Memorial Baptist friends and family. Welcome back to our midweek edition of our podcast for June 24th, 2020. I hope everyone had a very blessed Lord's Day this past Sunday. What a great day it truly was that we gathered with our church family and set aside some time worshiping our Lord together. I was so blessed to be with you all. Our worship team did a great job leading us in worship. And our church family participated and sang with exuberance and enthusiasm. I'm so looking forward to meeting again at Memorial for Morning Worship uh, in our worship center this Sunday, June 28th uh, at 10.45 a.m. I hope to see you there uh, this Sunday. We are continuing to monitor and evaluate our community and area as we seek to reopen other aspects of our ministry at Memorial. Our deacons and leadership um, made up of our staff and deacons uh, met last evening to discuss the possibility of modifying our plan for moving into phase three of our reopening plan. At this point, they have decided to pray a couple of days about these particular areas. In addition to our Sunday morning worship, adding preschool, child care, and nursery during our worship time uh, for those parents who are comfortable with that, Uh, There would be a limited number of children who would need to RSVP, their parents would, to let our volunteers know how many would be coming on Sunday morning. Other protocols would uh, also be included and and are still being considered uh, how to implement those. Um, Jeff Watts and our youth ministry would be allowed to meet during the the week following uh, social distancing guidelines with hand sanitizing and masking capabilities. So adding nursery uh, for Sunday morning, adding youth uh, sometime during the week, and then uh, adding a midweek uh, prayer service uh, would also be added, practicing social distancing and other uh, protocols as well. So while we are not planning on moving completely into phase three, we are moving in that direction uh, with these modifications. And as I've said before, if you have questions or concerns, please call us. I know this is not easy for any of us. It's taken a, a, a lot to put things together and to figure it out. But we're trying to do our best to keep our people and our most vulnerable ones safe as we open up slowly and cautiously. Again, if you have questions or concerns, please call us. You know, each of us should assess our risk individually and in relation to our own families. And please exercise the freedom and good sense to do what you need to do, but extending grace to others as they do the same thing. Now, before we jump into our scripture passage uh, for this afternoon, this evening, I'd like to uh, pray together, and if you would, pray with me uh, while I lead us in prayer. Loving Father, thank you so much for your wonderful love and care for each one of your children. Thank you for giving us life and eternal life. Thank you for giving us our families, our spouses, and our children. Thank you for loving us so much that you gave us your only son to die for our sins. I ask that you would be, Father, with our our country. Please preserve our great nation. I know we don't deserve it because I'm a sinful man and I live among sinful people. But Father, may your grace abound in our country. Forgive us for our stubborn pride. Forgive us when we've not honored you. Forgive us when we've not ministered to the poor. Forgive us when we've not dealt kindly and generously with our brothers. 
Lord, I ask that you would be with our president and governmental leaders. Turn their eyes upon you, Lord Jesus. I ask for wisdom for them and for us as we deal with the many issues that come up in each day of our lives. I pray for those who are incarcerated. I ask that your grace and gospel would spread in the prison system. I ask for mercy and grace for those in our nursing homes and care facilities. Father, I ask that our homebound would feel your presence with them during this time. Please, Father, I ask that you would protect them from the virus. Father, give us the wisdom to know what to do and when to do it. Give us the discernment to make the right decisions. Help us to minister to people during these difficult days. I pray, Holy Spirit, for an outpouring of your Spirit upon our church. I ask, Father, that we would be in unity for the things that you put on our heart. Father, may we be all unified in walking this journey together. And thank you so much for loving us. Please send sweeping revival all across this land to the churches and the saints that belong to you. Oh, how we need times of refreshing. Thank you, Father, for what you are about to do in us and for us and through us. We love you. In Jesus' name, we humbly pray. Amen. In 1903, someone noticed a Russian sentry standing guard at a post with no apparent reason for his being there. When asked why he was standing guard there, he answered, I'm just following orders. The question was asked of the captain of the guard, but he didn't know why that sentry was posted there either. The inquiry eventually went up to the chain of command to the czar, and he didn't know either. He asked that someone track down the answer, and finally it was discovered that in 1776, Catherine the Great had planted a rose bush there and posted a sentry to guard it. The bush had been dead for over 80 years, but the sentry was still standing guard. (laughs) Traditions are hard to change. Religious traditions are especially hard to change because people insist that God ordained them. The Jews rightly believed that God had ordained the traditions and practices of the Mosaic Law almost 15 centuries 1,500 years before the time of Christ. The law was the very center of the Jewish culture. They ordered their lives around the Sabbath worship and the yearly feasts. The priests and Levites oversaw and regulated the worship of the temple. And the sacrifices and rules for ceremonial cleansing were all spelled out in the law. These laws and traditions were deeply entrenched. To challenge the validity of these practices was to risk your life. You remember the opponents of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. They charged, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. That's in Acts 16. Excuse me, Acts 6. Paul's opponents shouted, This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place in Acts 21. Even many Jews who had professed faith in Christ were still zealous for the law. 
So the author of Hebrews had a formidable task in trying to convince his Jewish Christian readers that the law and the Levitical priesthood that was inextricably linked to the law were now obsolete and set aside because of the far better new covenant and priesthood of Jesus Christ. He makes some radical statements about the law. It was weak and useless. It made nothing perfect. Because of these problems, it had been changed and set aside. The writer is drawing a distinct dividing line between Judaism and Christianity. You cannot blend the two into a homogenous hybrid. He doesn't even want his readers to go back to the old Jewish way as if they were, they were good, it was good enough. Even if they suffer persecution for their faith, they must persevere because Jesus has provided a better hope through which we can draw near to God. See, that statement was radical too. As I said last week, every Jew knew that you couldn't just stroll into the Holy of Holies to have a little chat with God. The Levitical system was designed to keep the worshipers at a distance from God, lest he destroy you. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, and that only once a year on the Day of Atonement. So for the author to emphasize that we are to draw near to God through Jesus was a staggering concept for those from a Jewish background. So in our text today, the writer is arguing that the new covenant and priesthood of Jesus are superior to the law and Levitical priesthood because they provide the way for us to draw near to God. So with this in mind, let's go ahead and uh, jump into our text. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7, um, verses 11 through 22. And uh, I want to just go ahead and read those. And uh, this is what the Word of God says. Hebrews 7, verse 11 and following. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope 
through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it is not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now that's God's word. The writer is, ta- is saying that there is a need for a new priesthood. You know, Sir Philip Sidney, he wrote, Laws are not made like nets to catch, but rather like sea marks to guide. A sea mark is a conspicuous object like a lighthouse or something that is distinguishable at sea in order to guide or to warn sailors in navigation. So these, the, 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 the laws are like sea marks to warn us, to help us as we navigate, but they, they don't, uh, they're not like nets. Now, verse 11 says, the Levitical priesthood never made anything perfect. It says, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, if perfection, and the law is the light that reveals how dirty the room is, not the broom that sweeps it clean. The law is the dentist's mirror that shows decay, not the instruments needed to fix the cavity. The law is a flashlight that guides you in the dark to the electric panel, but it doesn't help you trip the breaker. The law is a plumb line, a framer used to see if something was true to vertical, but he never uses it to square the wall. See, he says, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, when the Apostle Paul uses the term perfection in his letters, he uses it to mean mature or complete or full-grown. That's how Paul uses the word perfection. But in Hebrews, it is a word used to refer to the goal and the aim of Christianity, which is access to God. See, in Hebrews, it does not mean spiritual maturity. It essentially has to do with the salvation in Christ. Compare for a moment verse 11 with verse 19. Look at verse 11. It says, Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not to be designated according to the order of Aaron? Verse 19 says, For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Now, what is the goal? The goal then that, that God has in mind is, that, is, is perfection. But it wouldn't come through Aaron and the Levitical priesthood, right? So God had to bring it to bring Melchizedek's priesthood. And the goal in verse 11 is perfection. Now, as we look at the goal in verse 19, it said, for the law made nothing perfect. The law couldn't bring the perfection that was the goal, right? There is a bringing in of a much of a better hope through which we get perfection. Is that what it says? No, it says through which we draw near to God. That's the synonym for perfection. Do you see it? 
See, in the book of Hebrews, perfection is access to God. It is the full goal of our faith. It is not spiritual maturity for those who are already Christians. I illustrate it another way. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 14 says, For by one offering, now that is Christ, by the one sacrifice of himself, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. In other words, he has given them positionally full access to God. You see, that's what it's talking about when it talks about perfection in Hebrews. Full access to God. Now this shows the need for a different order of priesthood. Now watch this word another. He says, what further, verse 11, what further need was there for another priest to arise? And then again in verse 15, and this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek. It is far more evident for after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest. Now in the Greek, there are two words for another. We may have talked about them before, but there is the word, the word here is heteros. There is one word for another, it's pronounced alas, A-L-L-O-S, alas, and it means another of the same kind. This one, heteros, means another of a different kind. Let me, let me describe it this way. Let's assume that I wanted to get rid of my wife's car. <laughs> now understand, I don't want to get rid of my wife's car. Not necessarily. But let's assume, for illustration, that I did. So I drive her Kia down to the car dealer, and I drive it in, and I say to the, the car dealer, I want to trade this Kia for another Kia. That would be Alos Kia. That would be another of the same kind. But let's say I say to the the car dealer, this guy, I say, no, this time I'm not happy. I want to trade this car for another car. I want to trade my Kia for, let's say, a Ferrari. I mean, why not? It's only an illustration. Go big or go home. So in the first case, I'm trading a Kia for a Kia. That's the same thing. In the second case, I'm saying I don't like my Kia. I want another car that's different than mine. That's what the word that is used in this passage when it talks about another priest. It's another of a different kind, not the same kind as the Levitical priesthood. See, we do not have another priest just like the other ones. We have another one who can do what the other ones couldn't do. That's the point of another. A very rich, rich word showing the distinction between Christ and the priests from the lineage of Aaron. So another priest had to come, and it was evident that he did, not like Aaron, but a different priest of a different order who could do what Aaron couldn't do. See, if perfection could come through the Levitical priesthood, there would be no need for another priesthood. Yet God described another priesthood in Psalm 110, verse 4. 
the simple fact that God describes a priest according to the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110 shows that there is something lacking in the priesthood according to the order of Aaron. I mean, God would never establish an unnecessary priesthood. The term Levitical priesthood simply describes the Jewish priesthood of the Old Testament. It is called Levitical because of the most of the instructions in the Old Testament priesthood are found in the book of Leviticus. Under it, the people received the law. The Old Testament priesthood is the priesthood associated with the law of Moses. The priesthood of Melchizedek is associated with Abraham, not with Moses. Let's look at verse 12. It says, For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. The changing priesthood and the change of the place of Moses' law. See, the priesthood being changed, this is logically developed from Psalm 110, verse 4. God would never introduce a new priesthood if it was not necessary, and he would never introduce an inferior priesthood. The mere mention of the order of Melchizedek shows that God wanted the priesthood to be changed. That, that verse says of necessity. You know, the, the priesthood of Aaron was connected to the law of Moses. So if the priesthood is changed, we should also anticipate some change of the law's status or place. Moving on, look at verse 13 and 14. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. I mean, Jesus could not be a priest according to the Mosaic law because he was from the wrong tribe. He wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He wasn't from Aaron's line. He was from the tribe of Judah, another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. You see, under the law of Moses, God strictly commanded those that are only from those from the family of Aaron could serve at the altar in sacrifice. He who of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. Jesus is obviously not from the house of Aaron or even from the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Judah, the tribe of Jesus's lineage, had nothing to do with Aaron's priesthood, the priesthood associated with the law of Moses. Therefore, according to the priesthood of Aaron, and the law of Moses, Jesus could never be a priest. If he is our high priest, it must be under another principle. Verse 15 says, and this is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of, of an indestructible life. <laughs> oh, this is big. God's declaration that the Messiah belongs to another order of priesthood is in Psalm 110. Not according to the law of a fleshly commandment. Jesus' priesthood is not based upon law or 
heredity, but on the power of God's endless life. You are a priest forever. This could be said of the Messiah, who is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It could never be said of a priest according to the order of Aaron. None of them who had the power of an endless life and each who served a limited term, even as priests, limited according to their own lifespan. They could not be, Jesus could not be of the order of Aaron, and the, the, the Levitical priest could not be of the order of Melchizedek. A new priesthood had to come. I love that because it talks about the power of an endless life. You know, Matthew 27 verse 1 says, When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. Wow. Among those who conspired to put Jesus to death were the priests of the order of Aaron. But by the power of an endless life, Jesus showed that his priesthood was superior when he triumphed over death. Now verse 18 and 19, it says, For on the other hand, there is a setting aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Why is the law set aside as the way of establishing our relationship and access to God? Scripture here tells us because of its weakness and uselessness or unprofitableness. In its weakness and uselessness, the law made nothing perfect. The law does a great job of setting God's perfect standard, but it does not give the power to keep that standard. You know, all legalists tend to mark this. The law made nothing perfect. Let the Seventh-day Adventists mark. The law made nothing perfect. Let all those who dream of the law as a rule of life remember the law made nothing perfect. So the law is valuable as it shows us God's perfect standard, but it was not ultimately intended to be the basis of a man's walk with God. This is because the law is weak and unprofitable when it comes to saving my soul or giving me power over sin. The law provides expert diagnosis of our sin problem, which is absolutely essential. But the law does not provide the cure to our sin problem. Only Jesus can save us from our sin problem. It goes on to say, since now in Jesus we have a better hope through which we draw near to God. We are wrong to go back to building our Christian walk on the law. So the law is annulled or set aside in the sense that it no longer is the dominating principle of our life, especially 
of our relationship with God. The Greek word translated annulling here or disannulling is the same as it appears in Hebrews 9, 6, for the putting away of sin by sacrifice of himself, the disappearance of the law is as absolute, therefore, as the putting away of our sin. I think that's huge. See, the law, it does not give you a better hope. The law does not draw you near to God the way God's grace given in Jesus Christ does. Yet many Christians live a legal relationship with God instead of a grace relationship with Him. Although the law performed a valuable function, its essential weakness was that it could not give life and vitality even to those who kept it, let alone to those who did not. In fact, its function was not to provide strength, but to provide a standard by which people could measure their own moral status. Its uselessness must not be regarded in the sense of being totally worthless, but in the sense of being ineffective in providing a constant means of approach to God based on a totally adequate sacrifice. See, the annulling of the former commandment, the the bringing in of a better hope, the writer came to the same conclusion about the law as Paul did in Galatians 3, 19 through 25, but he got there in a totally different way. In Galatians, Paul showed the law as a tutor that brings us to Jesus. In Hebrews, the law is associated with a priesthood that has been made obsolete by a superior priesthood. Stop thinking about cleansing and consider the cleanser. Refrain from to speculate on deliverance and deal with the deliverer directly. See, a better hope through which we draw near to God. Because we have a better priesthood and a better high priest, we also have a better hope and a better way to draw near to God. Our hope is in Jesus, not in the law of Moses, or even in our ability to keep the law of Moses. This should temper our excitement about rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. The small cadres of dedicated Jews absolutely committed to rebuilding the temple have an exciting place in God's prophetic plan, but anyone who restores the priesthood of Aaron, and resumes the Levitical sacrifice, especially for the atonement of sin, denies the superior priesthood and ultimate sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about the superiority of our high priest. Verse 20 And 21 says, inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who has said, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. See, Jesus was made a high priest by the direct oath of Almighty God. He was not 
made priest without an oath. The priesthood of Jesus was established with an oath by God. It's recorded in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. See, now the earthly priest, the the priest, the Levitical priest, the priest of the order of Aaron, they have become priests without an oath. The high priest of the order of Aaron was appointed by heredity, not by personal character or by uh, an oath from God. But this was not so with Jesus in the priestly order of Melchizedek. God even sealed his choice by an oath. Look at verse 22. It says, So much more, the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Jesus is our guarantee of a better covenant. I mean, we buy, many times we buy things today and they have with them or attached to them a, a warranty or a guarantee. And it's the maker's. It's a manufacturer and their promise that the item sold will fulfill the buyer's expectations. See, the author now focuses in on God's oath. The maker's promise. Jesus has become a surety. The ancient Greek word translated surety describes someone who gave security, who co-signed a loan to guarantee payment or to put up bail for a prisoner. And so Jesus himself is the guarantee of a better covenant. See, the old covenant had a mediator and its mediator was Moses, but no one to guarantee the people's side of that same covenant. So they continually failed under it. But the new covenant, a better covenant, (laughs) has a cosigner to guarantee it on our behalf. So the new covenant depends on what Jesus did, not on what we do. He is the surety. He is the guarantee, the warranty. And we are not. Now the word used for covenant is not the usual term for covenant. And literally meaning, the the literal meaning of uh, diatheke is closer to the idea of a testament in the sense of maybe someone's last will and testament. Now, maybe the writer is trying to stress that while a covenant may be thought of as an agreement that two equal parties arrive at, the testator dictates a testament. The one who puts out the rules is the one who dictates that. See, the agreement under which we meet with God through Jesus is not something we have negotiated with him. He has dictated the terms to us and we will either 
accept them or reject the terms. Those are our two choices. Scripture says this much more. The overwhelming superiority of Jesus Christ proves he is worthy and able to be our guarantee, our co-signer of a better covenant. I want you to notice something else here. The author of Hebrews likes the word better. He uses it 12 times in the original Greek out of 18 total uses in the entire New Testament. Jesus is better than the angels. The author is convinced of better things concerning the Hebrew Christians. The new covenant is a better covenant with better promises. Jesus is the better sacrifice, whose blood speaks better than the blood of Abel. Christians have a better possession in heaven. So men of faith sought a better country, that is a heavenly one. We receive a better resurrection. God has provided something better for us than for the Old Testament saints. And here we have a better hope through which we draw near to God. The author's point is, if you've got something better, why go back to something that's worse? Maybe those Jewish Christians that he's writing to were nostalgically thinking of the good old days, but they were losing sight of the fact that what they presently had in Christ was far better than anything they ever had under Judaism. What the Old Testament saints looked forward to, we have received. We have full forgiveness of sins through Christ's better sacrifice. We don't have to stand out in the courtyard while a priest represents us in the Holy of Holies. We have a high priest that's within the veil and he invites us to draw near to the very throne of God, which is a throne of grace to receive grace to help in our times of need. You may be thinking, well, hey, this is great stuff for the Jews who were tempted to go back to Judaism. But I've never, ever dreamed of going back to Judaism. How does this relate to me? I want to say first, make sure that you understand and revel in the fact that you have been made acceptable to God totally through what Jesus has done and not at all through anything you have done. See, every religion in the world except Biblical Christianity teaches that you must do something to gain acceptance to God. Even the the Roman Catholic Church teaches that you cannot be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Rather, you must add your good works to your faith in Christ in order to gain merit towards heaven. But Paul The Apostle Paul is abundantly clear that we are saved by God's grace, his unmerited favor, totally apart from any works that we do. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. 
but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Romans 4, 4 and 5. If you properly understand what Paul is saying, your initial reaction would would be, well then, should we continue in sin that grace may increase? And Paul anticipated that reaction in 6.1, Romans 6.1, and he refuted it. But that thought should at least pop into your mind if you understand the radical nature of salvation by God's grace alone. If you're seeking to draw near to God through anything, that you do to qualify, you do not understand the gospel. Secondly, I would say make sure that you are utilizing and enjoying the great privilege of drawing near to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you are right with God for time and eternity because of what Jesus has done for you, then you have a better hope. You should abound in hope in God. Whatever daily problems you face, whether trivial or tragic or major, you have access to the presence of God through the blood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, draw near. Draw near. You have access through the blood of Jesus. You know, when Donald Gray Barnhouse was a student in France, he pastored a small evangelical reform church in the French Alps. Each week he went to a neighboring village. He would pass the local priest going in the opposite direction. They would often stop and chat. And so over the course of time, they became friends. And on one occasion, the priest asked Barnhouse why Protestants do not pray to saints. Why should we? asked Barnhouse. The priest launched into an illustration of how one might get an interview with the French president. One could go through one of the cabinet members who might succeed in opening the door to the president's office so that Barnhouse might get in to see him. And the priest's triumphant smile implied that the simplicity and clarity of the argument were such that they would, it would preclude any rebuttal. But Barnhouse said to his friend, he said, but suppose that I were the son of the president. I am living in the palace with him. I get up from the breakfast table, kiss him goodbye as he goes to his office. Then I go down to the ministry of the interior and ask the fourth secretary of the second assistant assistant, if it would be possible for me to see the minister of the interior. If I succeed in reaching his office, my request is for an interview with my dad. (laughs) The friend of Barnhouse was thunderstruck as, as he added that he was a child of the king, an heir of God, joint heir with Jesus Christ. And as such, he had immediate access to the Father. Folks, that is our great privilege through Jesus Christ, our priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek.
you know, as I wrap this up, I just want to say meditate on that. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Next week, we're going to continue in our study in Hebrews in chapter 7. Until then, stay safe, practice good hygiene, stay studied up in God's Word, eat well, get some exercise. And I just want to continue to say, whatever you do, give God all the praise, glory, and honor that is due His name. I hope to see all of you, each and every one of you, very soon. I love you so much. God bless you.